This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. How a personal connection led to a promising treatment for advanced Alzheimer's. And she was a Canadian champion, a world champion, and an Olympian. But Perdita Felician's memoir focuses on her mother's struggle to build a better life in Canada. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. China's weak population growth is falling closer to zero as fewer couples have children. New government data shows this is adding to the strains on an aging society amid a shrinking workforce. China has enforced birth limits since 1980, but now there's a worry that the number of working-age people is falling too fast. Birth limits have been eased, but couples are put off by high costs, cramped housing, and job discrimination against mothers. Canadians aren't getting enough omega-3 in their diets. A new study in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition reveals 4 in 10 have an omega-3 blood level associated with high risk of coronary heart disease. Guidelines have long recommended eating fish twice a week to help prevent heart disease. But to move into the low-risk zone, researchers say it will require eating considerably more fish than current guidelines. Omega-3 fatty acids reduce inflammation, prevent abnormal heartbeats, and improve blood vessel function. This year, we will have uh, around 50 million doses available, which most of them have already been manufactured. The head of Pfizer is writing a book about how the COVID vaccine was developed in months instead of years. Chairman and CEO Dr. Albert Borla has a deal with Harper Business for what the publisher is calling an exclusive, first-hand, behind-the-scenes story. Moonshot, inside Pfizer's nine-month race to make the impossible possible, is set for release November the 9th. The 59-year-old CEO says he's sharing the story not only about the challenges, but hopes it will inspire others. A Romanian landmark long associated with a stake through the heart is now offering a jab in the arm. The Transylvanian castle, believed to be the inspiration for Bram Stoker's 19th century novel Dracula, is the backdrop for a COVID-19 vaccination center. Romanian officials say vaccination marathons will be held just outside the storied 14th century hilltop castle every weekend this month. Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown's grandmother celebrated her 107th birthday this week. 
He tweeted that this last year of social isolation in long-term care has been hard on her, but she's been resilient. Teresa Brown has survived the Spanish flu, two world wars, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. The Brown family celebrated her special day over Zoom. Mayor Brown says his nanny hasn't seen his son Theodore for 14 months and has yet to meet daughter Savannah. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It started with a phone call from a friend in Michigan, and it led to a promising new treatment for advanced Alzheimer's. Toronto researcher Jerry Cutler recommended low-dose radiation for his friend's wife, and the remarkable results led to a pilot study by Baycrest and Sunnybrook. I reached Jerry Cutler at his home. This study started after there was one case of a woman who had a remarkable response to low-dose radiation. So tell me a little bit about that case and how it came to be applied to other people. I've been working in this field for 25 years. I've published about 50 papers on health effects of radiation low-dose. Uh, the scientist in Michigan, he, he worked, he retired from Dow uh, chemical, and uh, he saw my work, and he called me on the phone and uh, asked me to help his wife. And uh, she was going to die, and the husband called me and asked me if I had a solution, a remedy that could save her life. And I said that I had reviewed a paper uh, that recommended uh, low doses of x-rays to uh, remedy neurodegenerative diseases. So he uh, contacted her physician to get a prescription for this treatment. The physician said he could not prescribe this because it's not an accepted medical procedure. So the husband asked, well, how about a CT scan of her brain? And he said, yes, that I can prescribe. So uh, he got a prescription, went to radiology to get the CT scan. The husband said, I don't want to pay for the analysis of the image. I just want the radiation. The next day, uh, the caregiver in the hospice came to the supervisor and said the remarkable change in the patient. She was speaking, she was cooperative, she was eating, taking her medication, whereas previously she'd been a vegetable and refused this. So uh, the husband called me and uh, reported this excellent recovery. It's not huge, but it's amazing for how she went being previously. And uh, so I recommended additional treatments because uh, I realized that there would be a relapse. So I suggested, well, in cancer therapy, uh, they do this twice a week for five weeks. So he went to uh, her physician and asked for a prescription. The physician said, uh, twice a week sounds a bit much for me. Uh, let's do it every two weeks. So uh, he gave him a prescription. She had another treatment. And then two weeks later, another treatment. Uh, they kept giving her treatments, and finally, uh, on November the 20th, uh, they transferred her from hospice back to a senior's home with a stimulating uh, program. I, I came there, and I visited her, 
and uh, we uh, stood behind her and took a photograph of her eating a sandwich. Then I, 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 I spoke out and I said, Barbara, look at the camera. And she picked her head up and, and posed for a photograph. And so we had another picture of her responding to my request. Uh, anyhow, she uh, carried on uh, for a year. She had improved quality of life. So this progressed for a year. Uh, he was giving her additional treatments. And uh, eventually uh, the disease uh, progressed. She had problems uh, eating, swallowing. And uh, finally she lost weight and passed away three years after uh, treatments started. So it it helped her with a better quality of life for three years? Yes. Well, the last year wasn't that great, but uh, it was uh, better than she had been in a hospice. How did you convince Baycrest to turn this into a bigger study? I uh, talked with the uh, director of neurology, Morris Friedman, and I showed him photographs that I'd taken of the patient, and I described the improvement, and I asked him just to repeat exactly what we did in Michigan. He looked at the pictures, and he said, how many patients do you need to treat? And I said, I believe it'll work on every one of them. He said uh, we could do it uh, at Sunnybrook because uh, he has a colleague there, Sandra Black, uh, who is a senior person in neurology, talked with the uh, radiologist, chief of radiology at Sunnybrook, and we agreed to uh, repeat uh, exactly the treatments that were done in Michigan. It took uh, a year to get approval of the idea uh, from the ethics committee both at uh, Baycrest and also at Sunnybrook. I also had to get approval from Health Canada to use a CT scanner, which is licensed for diagnostics, uh, use it for treatment. And I got a letter from them uh, saying that this was uh, open-label use of uh, an approved uh, radiation device. So uh, we were then able to proceed. You repeated this, but with just a few patients. Yes, we try. We did it with five patients, yes. And what was the result? Four of them got better. One of them was very severe. He was really advanced. It was not surprising he didn't uh, improve. The other four did improve. Uh, when the relatives came, they recognized them, opened up, began to talk with them. It was uh, remarkable uh, how they were behaving so differently. Okay. Jerry Cutler, thanks a lot for that. You're welcome. Thanks for calling. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was researcher Jerry Cutler. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, a raw memoir from Perdita Felicienne, former Canadian and world champion in hurdles. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP. Canada's largest and most influential association fighting for the interests of Canadians as we age. Find out more at carp.ca. Perdita Felicien's memoir is a love letter to her mother, Catherine, who faced racism, abuse, and hostility after coming to Canada from St. Lucia as a domestic worker. Felicien tells the story of how the two beat the odds together as she went on to an illustrious career as a 10-time Canadian hurdling champion, 
a world champion, and a two-time Olympian. I talked to her about My Mother's Daughter, a memoir of struggle and triumph. Your mom is from St. Lucia. She originally came to Canada for a, a wealthy couple, brought her over to take care of the kids. But then she had to go back. How did that happen? And how did she get back again? Yeah, within months of them bringing her to Canada the very first time, they're like, oh, you know what? This is actually not a good idea. And you have to imagine my mom had left her, you know, her toddlers. She had two by that time. I wasn't at either of them. I wasn't born yet. But the plans that she had to make it in Canada were suddenly dashed. And so she's back home in St. Lucia for a while. And they bring her back again. (laughs) And... For my mother, when she's here, she's working for a couple uh, who decided to take over her visa. And she's working for them. There are a couple, the Harry's in the book, they're very difficult. My mother accidentally gets pregnant with me, not planned while she's here, when she comes back to Canada. And when she's here with me, it's one of those things where I make her life harder, honestly. And even when I wrote the book, I'm like, Mom, why did you not just like leave? Why were you holding on to this dream of Canada so much? My mother just knew that she wanted more for her children than us ever selling on a beach. And she knew she had to stay here and stick it out in order for that to happen for us. And your biological father, you didn't know him, did you? No. In the book, his name is David, and that's actually his name. But I don't know him. I've never met him. As soon as he found out that my mom was pregnant, you know, he just disappears and, you know, skips away. My mom had never heard from him after that. And so it was really me going back and making sense of what her life was like back then to really inform mine. Because you you have to imagine being a woman going through life and half of your, you know, your identity you don't know anything about. It's very, um, it's very difficult thing to to reconcile as you age. Are you curious about your biological father? The only curiosity I have about him is what he looks like. My mother has told me all my life that I look like like David, you oh. know, and I, and I hate it. I hate, I hate that she makes that association or that she tells me that. The only curiosity I have is not necessarily who he is, because I think I know everything I need to know about him. Any man that would just abandon, you know, their child, whether they love the mother or not, tells me all I need to know. And if I could get a picture of him and, and, and see him, that would be enough for me. The man that you grew up considering to be your dad, that was also a difficult relationship. Yeah, Bruce, who was, uh, yeah, my dad, and I love my dad, and it is, it was a difficult relationship between the two of them. I am learning who my dad is, you know, after writing this book, and it, it, it makes me sad at times because I wanted a father that was traditional and was there for you and did all these things, and, and my dad wasn't that, and I think he could only love me the way that he could. In the early years, he was abusive to my mother, in many ways, especially, you know, emotionally, and would take advantage of the fact that she didn't have any papers in Canada. She had no status, no legal right to be here. And he held that above her head. And my dad is still my dad today. We're still in touch. We're still in, you know, we still have a lot of of love for each other. You and your mother ended up in a, a shelter. Yeah. Yeah. Because my dad put her out one night and, you know, years before he you know, cut off the electricity. He just do all these things to control her. And one night the police were called and, you know, one of her friends came over. It was actually Mrs. Baxter. It was a woman who originally brought her to Canada and took us to the Denise house. 
and it was a women's crisis shelter in Russia, Ontario, and that was our safe haven for a while. That must have been very tough for you as a child. It wasn't. I remember the laugh for the first time and, and recognize her laugh and how deep mom could laugh, right? Because I'm used to mom being sad or melancholy and, you know, you know, just the struggle of life. And here suddenly my mom is like herself. And I loved all the food in the fridge and the clear <laughs> with like endless pieces of paper and crayons and markers. And I didn't understand at that age that we shouldn't have to be here. But looking back now, it was proof that at least part of the system was working, that there was a safe space. When did you realize that you had an athletic gift? <laughs> I think I fought it for a while. And I think it was my teacher in grade three, Mrs. Mrs. Arthur, who recognized it. And she made me sign up for the track team because I was so good in her gym class. And I did. I, I just took to it. I was competitive. I enjoyed it. It was hard to beat me. So, I mean, that, there's a bit of an addiction to just always winning, right? I think grade, yeah, grade three, four, all the way to grade seven, I never lost. I lost a really big race in grade eight, and then I quit, right, for two years in high school. And it was my mother who kept encouraging me to go back. As a teen, I thought she was nagging me, to be honest. And for two years, I, I turned my back on my sports. And had it not been for her, I knew I wouldn't have gone back because I was so headstrong and I was so stubborn I wouldn't have gone back. And I was good academically, so I didn't need sport, I thought. She made me realize, like, this is a gift. If you don't get to see where it can take you, you'll be a fool. And that's when I took the floor up again. And it just took off for me by the time I was 18. When you look back on your very illustrious career now, what do you think? You know, I think it went by fast. And you think you're always going to be in it, right? Like, this will go on forever. And I was fortunate to do it for, you know, 23 years of my life. And 13 of those elite. So I think that I'm really fiercely proud of everything that I accomplished. You know, 2004, you know, that Olympic moment of falling at the first hurdle at the favorite is something that I think Canadians remember. And for a long time, you know, I looked at it as a failure. Of course, it was a loss. Of course, it was falling short. But I look back now and I realize, oh, my goodness, that is actually where true character and grit is formed is in our failures. And me daring to go after something is what was important, right? And not being afraid to go after anything. And I look back, I'm like, you know what? You couldn't hold your head high, Pranita, because you were fearless in that moment. And being fearless in that moment has allowed me to be fearless in other moments and hopefully pass that on to my two-year-old. Perdita Felicien, thank you so much. Thanks, Libby. That was Perdita Felicien on her memoir, My Mother's Daughter. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.